0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Psalm 49 To the Choir Master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another. Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, His soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast, beasts that perish.
1: I want us to consider for just a minute, just a few current events, all right? This is not normally the way I open a sermon, so just bear with me for just a second. Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Tesla are among the richest companies in the world. Every single one of them is worth more than a trillion dollars. Most of them are worth more than two trillion dollars, and Apple is worth three trillion dollars. Just let that sink in for just a minute. How much money that actually is. So in terms of global wealth, it would be hard to imagine more buying power concentrated in the hands of a few people than that. I mean, can you imagine how much buying power collectively they have together? Following the invention of the smartphone in 2007, so-called information age went into warp speed it exploded and it vaulted these companies some of whom didn't exist at the time into the stratosphere of wealth but along with their wealth also their influence with the boon of the smartphone also came the advent of social media since then Since social media came onto the scene, listen to this, child suicide rates have skyrocketed by 150%. Think about that. We know what the cause is. But it's not just influence over our lives. They they clearly have influence over our lives. Even the lives of our children. They clearly have influence. But it's not just influence over our lives directly like that. Influence in the halls of government as well. Amazon, Apple, Google, Meta, which would be Facebook, and Microsoft spent nearly $69 million lobbying the federal government in 2022. And that's up from $55 million in 2021. Much of this spending is influencing votes, bills, all kinds of other things that benefit the company more than you. Do you have sixty-nine million dollars to give to No, of course not. If you do, just come see me after this, Silver. Uh <laughs> just kidding. It's not just the rich tech companies that have real world power either. Over the years, the elites in places like Hollywood have had tremendous sway over the culture. From fashion trends to philosophies, thoughts, the way that we think, the way that we interpret the world around us, has been heavily influenced by the media that we consume, put out largely by them. And now, in today's world, social media influencers are telling us all what to think about everything from politics to what beverage you should drink. Everything under the sun influenced by them. And if that's not enough, nearly every politician the world over would be considered by wealthy by anyone's standards. Every single one of them. Millionaires, some multimillionaires, maybe some even more than that. And then they gather together once every year or so, and that makes us all real nervous, doesn't it? when we see the videos that come out on YouTube and watch the news and things like that, talking about all their great plans that they've got together that they're going to, you know, bring to the world. Now we've got this thing out there on the horizon that they're developing artificial intelligence and supposed to take everyone's job, no sweat off their back, but, you know, end up replacing us all at some point. So much of our lives are ruled by the rich the wealthy, people you didn't, you didn't elect, people you don't know, that have influence over your lives and over the lives of your children. And as, as much as we roll our eyes at the things that come out of their mouths sometimes, we think, oh my goodness, I can't believe people actually believe that, there's no denying that the worldly power and influence that is to be had lies in the hands of a relatively few very wealthy people? And the answer is no. I'm not about to announce my campaign for president. All right? <laughs> Just, I know you're all thinking that. He's about to run for president, isn't he? No, he's not. But don't you have to ask sometimes? When you, when you maybe watch a YouTube video, or you are watching the news or something like that, and you hear one of these things, and you, and you roll your eyes, and you, don't you have to think, why these people Why are are these the ones? Why are these the so-called cultural elites? Why why do they have all the money? The people that seem to want to do the worst things with it, why do they have all the power and influence? Don't you think sometimes, like, I I would so much rather Billy Graham have had, you know, a little bit more of that and just, you know, people that you think are kind of like, good people. I'm whole. Like, wouldn't you rather see them entrusted with some of that authority? Why is it that these people are running the world? Our psalm this morning is really meant to encourage God's people because there's a fear that all this power that lies in the hands of the wealthy and the godless in the world is going to lead to my detriment. There, there's a nervousness amongst God's people that says, I don't know what to think about all this. What, what do I do with these people that are, that are running things, that have so much power and authority and influence, and, and they don't seem to use it for, for very much good at all? Now, that could be a local village, as probably it might have been in the Psalmist day. Just a, a person who is over that village who has power and influence and authority. Or it could be, like in our day, the wealthy and godless of the world who seem to have control and power and influence and authority that control so much of the world's operation. His point remains the same. No matter whether you find yourself in a small village with a a chieftain who seems to be running in a godless direction or or whether you're in a world like ours with social media, his truth is timeless applies to everyone equally. Psalm 49 is basically this extended proverb, and I kind of like this. It's very difficult when you read it. It's very hard to understand what he's getting at, but I kind of like it because it's a little bit different. It's a little bit off the beaten path of what we we normally do. It, It sounds very much like a proverb, but it's extended out over 20 verses Like a psalm, we're we're used to those Proverbs being just very, like a short one or two line, little pithy statement, you know, that we read in the book of Proverbs, and one, then the next, and the next, and the next, and they're not really connected to each other. Psalm 49 is kind of like that, but it's expanded out over about 20 different verses. And so the author is going to introduce that to us, and he's going to tell us what he's doing here in verse 1. Look at it. He says, Hear this, all people." Give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Now, it's important when we're reading the Bible that we pay attention, particularly at the beginning and the end, because the author normally tells us what he's about to do. And so anytime he gives us that little clue at the beginning or the end, you need to tune your ears to it and and look at it really closely because he gives you all the information up front. He tells us what he's going to accomplish. This psalm, he says, is addressed to the, to, as, as wisdom to the entire world. He's inviting every inhabitant of the world, that is, for all times, both in the day that he wrote it and in our day today. Every person around the world, all the inhabitants of the world, come and listen. If you're rich, if you're poor, it doesn't matter. Come and listen. But if you look at verse 4, he tells you what his intentions are. He says, I will incline my ear to a proverb. And I'm going to give you a proverb. And he says, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre." So up front, he tells us all the information about what he's about to do. This is going to be in the form of a proverb. And so he's going to use that as a, and pose it in the form of a question. So he's going to give us the proverb, the riddle, up front. And he's going to pose it in the form of a question. He calls that a riddle. And then at the end, what does he say he's going to do? He's going to solve that riddle at the very end. So so we should expect that as we read through this psalm, that at the beginning we get this introduction, him telling us what he's going to do. After that, he's going to give us the problem in the form of a question, like a riddle. And then at the end of the psalm, he's going to solve the riddle. So we are going to see a very clear layout of a problem, a solution, and then an application. He's going to tell us what all that means for our lives. So we're going to see, as we follow through here pretty closely along with those Selah words in the psalm, exactly what he's going to lay out. First is a problem, and that problem is in the form of a question, and the question is this. Why do we fear the oppression of the rich? Why, God's people, do you fear the oppression of the rich? Why do you fear the oppression of the rich? Look at verse 5. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Now, let's be clear as to who he's talking about. He's not just talking about people who have money. Believe it or not, the Bible is not against people who have money. That's not precisely the problem. These are the kind of wealthy people who first have a personal impact on the poor. You notice he he identifies them as people who cheat me and they surround me. There's a threat that they pose to the people who don't have. These are the people who have, who who got there either by ill-gotten means or who are using their money and their power and their influence that follow behind the money for nefarious purposes. So they're cheating the people that they can manipulate, they're robbing the people who are poor. It's the kind of people who are causing other people to suffer because of their money. You understand? So first of all, that's the target of the rich people that we're looking at. Second, these are the kind of wealthy people who don't just have that, but then as a result also trust in the abundance of their money. This is the problem with quote-unquote, rich people in the Scriptures. It's not simply that they have money. It's that they use their money to replace a trust in God for trust in the thing itself. It's no longer about God who's provided the money. Now it's about the money as an end in and of itself. So they flaunt what they have and they find security in the things that they possess. And if you look down at verse 13, it says this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. So this is the kind of wealthy person that we're talking about. Not just someone who happens to have money, who God has blessed with a lot of money. There's plenty of representation of those people throughout scripture. But what he's talking about specifically are people who use their money and power and influence for nefarious purposes and who put trust or foolish confidence in the money that they have. The Bible isn't necessarily against people that have money. Just to get Against people that put their trust in it. Now, when I say that, that's not to try to get us, any of us in this room out of feeling guilty over the way that we think about our money. It's not a way of going, whew, thank the Lord he's not talking about me. No, no, hold on. We're going to get to all of us in just a little bit. But, but really, within this room, there are probably everybody in this room has a place in their life where they have either found security in money or desired a lot of money. So when you, when you look at the screens that are in front of you and you're watching these people who have the power and influence, is you're feeling desperation, thinking, well, everything's doomed. All is lost. Or are you thinking, man, wouldn't I love to be in that room? Wouldn't I love to be flying on the private planes to Davos and traveling on the yachts to Monaco, right? Well, in the event that we are looking at that and desiring it, we're just as guilty. Because we're putting the same kind of confidence in money. Or are we looking at the screens and going, all is helpless because these people are in control. In the the event that we look... helplessly at the world around us and lose our trust in the sovereign Lord of the universe who controls all of this, then we're guilty along with them because all of our confidence still is in riches and wealth. So it's not a a desire to get us out of feeling guilty over any of that. In the event that we see that in our heart, we should repent of that sinful attitude. But it is to say that the people that are in view here, the rich people that he's talking about, hold that position and then lord it over others without repentance or fear of god at all but but why why is our fear of the oppression of these people so foolish we'll look in verse seven he says truly no man can ransom another or give to god the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice That he should live on forever and never see the pit. There's two reasons that he gives that it's foolish to fear these people. Fear the people that would oppress you with their riches. The first is that that man who does that cannot buy his way out of death. Death is batting a thousand. It's taking everybody down. Alright? He can't buy his way out of death. No matter how much money a man possesses, it is not enough to save his life from the grave. And why? Why is it not enough to buy his redemption? He says because his life is just that costly. No matter how much he has, he can't write a check big enough that would get him out of death. Now, do you think this is an issue in our world today? L- let me read this. Just sit back and relax here for just a second, okay? Jeff Bezos, Amazon's founder and the third richest man alive. I'm not, that, I'm not sure when that was written, but maybe it's updated. Maybe he's second now. I don't know. Third richest man alive, invested in a biotech firm in 2021, whose goal is to reverse the aging process. Google founders, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, launched Calico Labs, their very own biotech company, with an eye to anti-aging in 2013. Oracle founder, Larry Ellison, once admitted, death makes me very angry. It doesn't make any sense to me. How can a person be there and then just vanish? Just not be there. Well, Ellison has donated more than... Hold on for just a second. You ready for this? Are you sitting down? You need to be sitting down. $370 million to research about aging and age-related diseases. How to reverse the aging process. $370 million. In 2006... PayPal founder Peter Thiel donated a paltry sum of $3.5 million to support anti-aging research through the nonprofit. Are you ready for the title of this nonprofit? Here we go. Methuselah Mouse Prize Foundation. <laughs> I, wanna, I like that guy Methuselah in the Bible. How can you make me make me like him? He lived a long time. All of this going to reverse aging. All of the people who have the money, what do they want to do with it? Figure out how they can live forever. So they take their money and they write checks over and over to people researching How I can live forever. And they just keep writing these checks over and over until maybe somebody gets a solution of here's how we can reverse the aging process. But but here's the reason, and it's in the Bible as to why they're not coming to good answers. Why they're not coming to the answers that they want. Why their money is not doing what they hoped it would provide. It says right here in the text. No man can ransom another, or are you ready for it? Give to God the price for his life. This is exactly what they're missing. What our friends in Silicon Valley haven't realized yet is that the price of death is not paid to the universe, it's not paid to a nonprofit. Keep me from dying. They can't collect that money and reverse the death process. This is probably why Larry Ellison is so confused by what death is. Very simply put, death is a debt to God because of man's sin. It's a debt owed to God. Your money is flowing in the wrong direction. You're paying money to another person who's dying to tell me how he can keep me out of death. What sense does that make? Now, I understand why the people who are dying take the money. I get that. I understand why they do. But it's highway robbery. Has no one told them? The guy you're paying is going to die too. What do you do about that? That life that is owed to God as a debt was given to him with an explicit command to not sin. And none of us in this room could do it. Every single one fell to it. And our sin was not just against someone else. It was against the God of the universe. And when man sinned, what he essentially did was stole the gift that God gave him and tried to run off with it as if he could flee from God's eyesight. He essentially stole the gift that God had given him. So what God did to mankind across from top to bottom is bring the curse of death as a price that he must pay. And what the psalmist tells us is no man can actually pay the ransom for it. No one can give an amount of money so that he might, give, he might get out of it. The ransom, he says, is costly and he says can never suffice. So when the tech bros look at God with their checkbook open and they've got the pen in hand and they ask God, How much? Tell me what the number is, and I'll write it down. God simply says to them the same thing that the Ferrari dealership says to me. If you have to ask, you can't afford it. It's as plain as that. But the second reason it's foolish to fear these people. First is, they can't buy their way out of death. It's it's coming for everybody. The second reason is in verse 10. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts, Selah. The second reason is he can't take his wealth with him. You ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? No, he can't take it with him. Everybody's going to go into the ground without anything. And we're not just talking about the rich. We're talking about everybody, even the wise here. And he watches it happen. Every single person in this world has been to a funeral or has known of someone who's died, and every single person goes out the exact same way, wise and, and foolish alike. Everyone, the fool, the stupid, the wise, everybody, they all die, and they have to leave their wealth to other people. And he says in this way, mankind is just like the average animal out there. We're not talking about in worth. Mankind is obviously worth a lot more than animals. But what he's saying is, just like a beast of the field, you came in with nothing, and you're going to leave taking the same amount with you. Right? It's going to be a net zero when you you get out of here. Just like the average beast of the field. So it ends with this lamentation that I don't just want to throw away here. It says this. Look at what he says there at at the end of verse 13. This is the path, he says, Of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Here's where he levels the playing field. He's not just talking about all the people who have, all the rich people out there. This is not just a psalm that's bringing conviction to the people who have all the money and who are controlling the power and influence. He also lumps in everybody else there at the end that says after them, people approve of their boasts. He's including not just the rich, but all the admirers too. Uh Uh-oh. Now, we might be the target of some of those. Now, presumably there's no one in this room that's got a yacht that's sailing to Monaco. right, But I guarantee you every single one of us at one point or another has felt that desire for money creeping up within us. A desire for the wealth that they have. Man, wouldn't it be nice to just be be able to have all the things and no worry about what to spend or what what I was going to what I was going to pay for my electric bills with? Wouldn't it be nice? if I didn't have any of those concerns. But here he's getting down to people who love what they love, who put the same kind of trust in money that they do. You understand, people who are not well off can be just as materialistic as people who are. It's the desire for those things that he's targeting specifically. It's the people who put trust in that, whether they actually have it or not. What is it about the deceit of wealth that we can watch hearse after hearse drag away dead person after dead person and realize they don't get it for very long? It leaves. What is it about the deceit of wealth that makes us want that? Or that we can hear testimony after testimony of all of these formerly rich people or still rich people that say, it doesn't buy happiness. Trust me that we still look at them and go, oh yeah, but I'd like to try. What is it about the deceit of wealth that draws us in time and time again? We can see these aging people who cannot deal with their own aging, and so they get all these injections and all these facelifts and all these different things so that they can no longer even frown, and they always look surprised. What is it about the deceit of wealth that causes us to look at that and go, man, that's the life. Is it? It doesn't seem like it. She can't even cry. It's preposterous. More than that, we can all be driven to fear what that influence that money brings gains people in the world. And if we stop for a moment, sometimes I think we're also prone to think that maybe because of the money that someone has or doesn't have, they're either blessed or cursed by God. And we look at some people and go, man, Lord has really blessed him because of where he lives, what house he lives in, where his house is situated, what kind of cars he drives. Or for the poor person, we might look at them and say, can't catch a break. If a rich person we see starts voting the way that we vote, maybe starts using his money for what we deem to be good causes, we might think, hey, that guy's all right. We might, well, he might be coming to Christ, I think. He's kind of, I mean, he's using his money for good things, he must be a Christian. No amount of money that you could ever have will ever curry favor with God. No amount of money that you have, nothing you buy, nothing you can do with that money will ever, ever curry you favor with God. You can't do enough good things that God would ever say, now that right there, all right, now we're talking No amount of money that you don't have would ever indicate that you are cursed by God. That's preposterous. Because very simply, the price on man's life is too high for money to buy it. Why do we fear their influence? Why do we want what they have? This is what he calls the riddle. Poses it to us as a question. It's the problem. So now what's the solution? The solution is you must, you must, you must think eternally. Christian, you cannot think temporally. Because we are in Christ, we have, it's off the books, we can't do it any longer. We don't have the luxury, like the rest of the world, of thinking only about worldly things. You cannot, your mind now has to be taken to eternity. You have to think eternally. Look at verse 14. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule them over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. Now, there's this word that's repeated in there several times. You've probably heard it a million times in the Old Testament, the word Sheol. And there's question as to what that means often. It can mean sometimes in some passages, very broadly speaking, it can just mean the grave. The casket, you might say. Or the place where dead people go. In some cases, when it's very broadly speaking like that, you get this sense that like everyone goes to Sheol. Everyone goes in the casket. He even kind of alludes to that already in the psalm. Everybody's going to go there. Okay, So there's a general sense in which Sheol is the place where everybody goes. It's the place of the dead or the casket or the grave. But that's clearly not the sense that he has here if you look at verse 14. For one, Sheol is the appointed place, and it's specifically for the people who put trust in their wealth and who gain advantages with their wealth over people, right? There is an appointed place in Sheol for them. But then if you look at the end of verse 14, he says, Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. This is what I think he means in verse 15 by the power of Sheol. It's the power to consume. It rots. It decays. It's pulling you down, and there's nowhere you can get out. This is what Jesus, I think, refers to often in the New Testament as the place of outer darkness. This is an appointed place where the wicked goes to the depths of Sheol where they rot in the grave, and there is no hope of escape, never So the solution to your temptation to fear the wealthy and the godless is to keep things in in an eternal perspective. First, in verse 14, it's to remember that their end is destruction. So when I'm tempted to look at what they've got and even think to myself, boy, wouldn't it be nice? What I have to remind myself is that is the path that leads to destruction. That desire that's creeping up in me for the things that they have, whether it be power, influence, or just buying power, is the the same tendency that leads to destruction. And that's what I've got to remember. No, that's the path to hell is what that is. But second, look at verse 15. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Now there's a lot of irony in this verse because if you go back up to verses 7 and 8, the word ransom is repeated several times and it's told to the rich man, or told to us, that the rich man cannot ransom his own life. The cost is simply too much. Now, in this verse, he says the cost can be paid. It is a debt That can be paid, you, man, just cannot pay it. It's too much for you to pay. The debt that is owed, the ransom that must be paid, can only be paid by God. You get that? The ransom that can be paid for your life can only be paid by God. The debt, in other words, that you owe for your sin is a debt that you could never possibly pay. You would spend an eternity in hell trying to make amends for it. There's not a number on a check big enough that you could write to pay that debt. The only way that your soul can be redeemed from the power of the grave is for God Himself to pay the ransom. Now... I have racked my brain over and over to figure out how this psalm points to Jesus and I just can't figure it out. Can you help me? God Himself has to pay the ransom. No matter how many times we hear the good news of Christ, we're prone to believe that there is something that we must do I must give God something so that he will receive me. I must do something there's got to be a good work that I can do. I got to be got man I got to open that Bible I got to go to church I got to do all these good things to prove to God that I'm good enough and maybe in the end he will receive me. It's a fool's errand. It's the same errand that all of the billionaires are doing are on right now trying to extend their life trying to figure out how they can have eternal life it's another check you're trying to write it can't be paid only god himself can ransom you so what happens is the perfect eternal son of god comes to earth he lives the life you never could a perfect life he dies the death that you deserve suffering the wrath of god that was owed to you and gives to you riches you could never buy in eternal life with him forever for free it's a ransom you can never pay not with your life, for all of eternity you couldn't pay it. And yet, time and again, we hear the gospel, and our inclination deep within is go, yeah, but I've got to do something to earn it. I've got to confess something, I've got to do something to actually earn it, to secure it. And the whole time the gospel is saying, no, I gave it to you freely so that no one could boast. This came true. I was telling this to one of my kids and talking about what it means to actually believe the gospel and we come to sin in our own lives and we feel guilty over it and we're talking and, and, I, and I say, so what do you do now? And the child says, I, I don't know. I pray. I don't know. Ask trust, trust, Christ is enough, that all of my sin, past, present, and future is all secured by his blood on the cross, trust, and the question that came back from this child is, that's it? That's it? Yes, that's it. That's it. Trust. It can't be that easy. Surely there's something. No. So, no one can boast. You are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The good works don't purchase your inclusion in Christ, the good works are evidence that you are in Christ. All of the things that include you in Christ, He did, not you so trust in fact we see this again in 1 Corinthians 15:50 50 to 57 Paul tells us I tell you this brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable behold I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He paid the ransom. Not you. In other words, your perfectionism will never pay the debt. Now there's the opposite of perfectionism today. I don't know what to call it other than hot messism. Sounded good. That idea that, I'm just a hot mess. God's going to have to save me. And just wallowing in all of the sins that cause you to be imperfect. And yet, never lamenting them. Never weeping over them, but finding some strange way to boast in them. You can't claim enough wealth in all the world to ever pay this ransom. Trust in Christ is born by His Spirit that He put within you. That is the only way forgiveness, that ransom, can ever be secured. So, what is the application? Well, He tells us in verse 16, Be not afraid. All of 16 and following is a summary. Be not afraid. That whole psalm, that whole proverb, the solution to the problem is all to get to the point in verse 16. Therefore, do not be afraid. What is it right now that you're looking at that you are terrified of? Are you terrified that God is going to reject you? And are you doing all the things that you're doing in order for God to look on you with favor? Good news in Christ He does. Do not be afraid. Are you looking at the events on the screen that are playing out in front of you? All the meetings of the powerful and the things that would cause you to otherwise be paranoid? Good news. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Take heart. I have overcome the world. How many times does he have to tell you, don't be afraid? What can he do to you? Nothing. What riches are you looking at with longing that you don't have in spades in Christ? So what happens if you die poor? Tell me. What happens if you die in utter poverty like so many around the world have and do every single day what happens christian if you die in that state you are ushered into the epitome of wealth in christ tell me what exactly you don't have that you're missing if you are in christ we have nothing to fear and nothing to complain about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the psalm. We're grateful for the message of do not fear. We know there is a temptation on all of our parts to look at what we don't have and to think, man, I wish I had it. We confess it's sin. At the same time, we pray the needs of every person in this room would be met. Not so much that we would be like so many who look at that wealth as an end in and of itself. Not that we would be prone to not trust you any longer because we've got it all covered. But I pray you would also not make us so poor that we're tempted to do all kinds of things, ill-gotten and otherwise to secure what we're lacking. We pray that you would provide for us, your people, and that we, as your people, will be called to trust in whatever we think we, we fear, whatever fears have been exposed in our hearts, that you would reveal them and lead us to confess, to repent, to turn from those things, and trust you, the one true and living God, that we might have our ransom from the grave. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10:30 and Wednesday nights at 6:15.